0: In celebration of the launch of this podcast, all of Andrea Pearson's book marketing courses are available at 50% off. Enter podcast launch one word at checkout. This still expires March 24th, 2018 at midnight. Go to com for information on currently available courses. Thank you. Hi everyone, welcome to the self publish Strong Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Pearson, and I'm joined by my husband, Nolan. And we started this podcast for several different reasons. The first of which is uh, I'm very passionate about marketing and being an author in books. And I love teaching others how to be successful at self-publishing. But um, we've got two little kids and actually getting out to conferences is really difficult. And so I've started doing things to simplify our lives, including creating a self-publishing school, and, and um, marketing class um, classes. You can find information about those at selfpublishstrong.com. Uh, but that's the first reason. The second reason is publishing is exciting and fun, and there's a lot of people that are very kind of discouraging and depressing about it who like to drag people down about the possibilities of being successful. And even big authors who are successful sometimes, I don't know if it's unconscious, but they sometimes get... A little bit of a Debbie Downer attitude uh, when it comes to new authors just trying out. And we want to make things more positive and upbeat and uplifting than that. And the third reason is because uh, my husband and I are huge entertainment buffs. And the last segment of our podcast is dedicated to movies and board games and things like that. We plan on discussing popular and some not-so-popular movies and what they did right, what they did wrong. And we're going to tie everything back into writing and self-publishing. Uh, we believe that every movie has something to teach about being a good writer, and whether it's a good lesson or not, that's you know that's debatable. But um, join us to discover your favorite movies all over again, and like I said, we're also going to be hopefully doing board games. We play a lot of board games, mostly cooperative, with my brother, and we comment all the time on the writing and on the artwork and things like that, we just thought it'd be fun to be able to discuss those in podcast format. Anyway... Um, just a little bit about me. I've been self-publishing since early 2011. I had a, was offered a contract with one of the big five, but turned it down to self-publish. And um, ten days after we got married, we decided to hit the road on our own. But I've since then, I've published over two million words under three pen names, including 35-plus novels, several nonfiction books, multiple novellas and short stories, and over 100 articles for professional blogs and websites. And I've been interviewed on the Science Fiction and Fantasy Marketing Podcast and a bunch of others, including uh, Rocking Self-Publishing and the Author Hangout. And I've guest posted on J.A. Conrath's A Newbie's Guide to Publishing blog. And anyway, just a bunch of stuff. Basically, I love self-publishing and marketing, and I do have some experience doing it. Anyway, that's enough about me, Nolan.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Yes, what about you?
1: What about me? Um uh, this is actually super relevant to the movie that we're watching and there is a scene where I will go on a rant about uh, something very personal to me um, <laughs> that they get wrong in the movie And um, I think
0: you, I know what you're talking about <laughs> you,
1: Yeah. Um, but anyway I, I work in a hospital um, I have a degree in biology but I also started a degree in drawing, painting, and printmaking and so I will be adding um, some artistic analysis to what we're doing Um, in addition to some (laughs) a scientific rant uh, in one of the scenes in particular.
0: Yeah, and we wanted to do this because we both have experience when it comes to writing, obviously. I mean, he's a huge reader, and it's important for authors to get their facts right and things like that. But um, what Nolan didn't say was he's actually a professional illustrator. He's done book covers for publishers and authors, and he's illustrated a lot of books for me. Uh, He illustrates books for local schools and things like that. So he actually... He's very talented, and you can check out some of his art on his blog, jamesekirwin.blogspot.com, which we don't actually have not updated in a couple of years. True. (laughs) Um, If you want to see any of his art, you can always email me and say, hey, I want to see your husband's latest artwork. (laughs) Anyway, um, okay, so the format we're going to follow for this blog is um, we'll first give updates brief updates, and Nolan's smiling at me, knowingly. Are you smiling? You and- said blog, not podcast. Oh, <laughs> did I? <laughs> Alright, fine. <laughs> Alright, so here's how the podcast will go. Thank you. Uh, we'll first give updates on our lives and our projects, and then we'll give a shout-out to our Patreon supporters, and you can find out about um, the perks that we offer through our Patreon account, which is patreon.com forward slash self-published strong. And, um, Going along with a theme of positive and uplifting, we'll also be sharing a positive quote, one per episode, just to kind of get you excited about being an author and ready to basically take on the world. And then we'll give a self-publishing tip, and like I said, my passion is marketing, but we'll cover the entire gambit of things, topics, self-publishing related. And then, like we've already said, we'll discuss a popular or not-so-popular movie, um, just so you know we w- we don't compare notes before episodes because we want to have natural dialogue and be able to discover together what we're thinking. We're gonna try to avoid spoilers, but we can't make any promises with that just because sometimes, you know, some of the movies, the ending ruins the movie, and that's you got to get this right when it comes to your books. You need to make sure that you're nailing everything. And so we'll be talking about all of those things. Uh, if And if there's going to be spoilers, i'll we'll try to warn you. And as an FYI, the microphone that we're using right here is my digital recorder that I use for dictating. We are in the process of building a house, and our nice microphone is packed away in the storage unit. And rather than unpack half the storage unit to find it, because we actually thought our house would be finished in November and we are the first of February right now, uh, we decided to just use my digital recorder. So it picks up a lot of weird things like stupid drivers driving down the road really loud just a couple seconds ago. All right, so for our first episode, uh, we're going to talk about Jurassic Park, which is one of my favorite movies. But before that, uh, do you have any updates on projects you're working on right now?
1: Uh, my son stole my stylus for my drawing pad, and <laughs> I just found it yesterday, so I think that's probably the the biggest update. <laughs>
0: awesome. Awesome. Um. And my life has been revolving on nonfiction stuff. I love teaching, I'm very passionate about it, but I, I, I'm a writer, I'm a fiction writer. I want to be getting back to my fiction writing. And so uh, once we get all this stuff taken care of, I'm really looking forward to digging back into writing the third book in my Coven Chronicles. So but most of the time we are you know, a lot of our time is spent wandering around the house cleaning up after our two little kids. We have a five-year- old girl and a two-year- old son who is very mischievous. <laughs> And pretty messy. Anyway, okay, so the the motivational quote for the day, and Nolan's going to read that.
1: Dreams don't work unless you do, by John C. Maxwell.
0: How does that make you feel? <laughs> uh,
1: like I have to work a lot.
0: <laughs> yes. We picked that as our first quote, because uh, the theme of our podcast is to be uplifting and encouraging, but at some point, dreaming needs to stop and working has to begin. Because if you don't put the work in then your dreams will actually they'll never come true. So as John C. Maxwell said, dreams don't work unless you do. All right, is that everything? That's oh, self-publishing, you yeah, know, the the tip for <laughs> tip on self-publishing. We're going to get this down, I promise. <laughs> if you're just starting out, the tips that I'm going to be sharing will some of them will be very overwhelming because I want to mix in advanced tips with brand new people, you know, brand new authors tips. And so I'm going to try to alternate them, and I'll have sequences of tips. You know, I don't want the tip section to overtake the entire podcast, and so I'll be using the tips and sequences, and some tips will stand on their own completely. Um, but the tip today is for new authors just starting out, and I just wanted to say that the most important thing for you is to get your book written. Don't worry about editing it, editing it until it's complete, and that includes self-editing. So after you finish writing something, don't go back and... Work on it and work it over and over and over to death because the goal when you're first starting is to get the book finished. Um, if you do not have a finished product, then you can't actually start self-publishing. And I think that applies even when you've got one or two books out because you know uh, we we tend to get distracted. And the most the best way to get experience is by writing more. So basically, start at the beginning and work your way forward with writing and marketing and everything. Um, but publishing, it can be difficult, but it's one of the most exciting, liberating things you, you'll ever do for yourself. So make sure you're enjoying the ride, too. Anyway, so we've got free courses available through selfpublishstrong.com. If you go there, I think I've got a tab that says something about free courses. Uh, the first one goes over the basic automation sequence I used to build up my ARC team. And it's I, it's been selling my books on autopilot for about two years now. Is that how long I've been using it? Yeah. And Royalties have do- doubled, quadrupled, I mean they've gone up quite, quite a bit since I started using an automation sequence. Uh, it basically sells your book on autopilot. Um, and I also teach a little known tip to increase productivity in that course, and then a great way to get readers to download your books when you want them to, and not whenever they get around to it. Uh, the second free course is called Am I Ready?, and it talks about everything you need to have in place before you really start digging into marketing. Uh, because marketing is difficult and everything, if everything isn't set up correctly, the possibility of losing a great deal of money and time is really high. So make sure you've got your ducks, ducks in a row first. And yeah, check those out at selfpublishedstrong.com, like I said. And now we're going to talk about Jurassic Park. Do you want to go first?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, let's talk about why we picked Jurassic Park. Okay. Uh, it's a movie most people have already seen. It came out in 94, I believe. Something like that. Very popular book, very popular movie, Um, and it's both. So the author of the book was very instrumental in the creation of the movie. He wrote a book, then he converted it to a screenplay. He took a 25, 30-hour read and had to compress it into two hours. So the scenes that are in that movie are very important and were very carefully constructed. That is the kind of attention that you need to put into a scene that you write in your book. Um, Be very selective about what it's telling your readers.
0: I actually had a very similar comment about, like, especially the opening scene. Everything in the opening scene, everything in every scene, actually, they, they did a very good job with this movie of making sure every scene does two things, you know, pushes the story forward and informs you of something. So, like, in the first scene, we've got a dark forest... And, um, we've got the music and we've got the buildup. We, we inter- it introduces us to, is his name Robert Muldoon? I know his last name is Muldoon, but uh-huh. anyway, introduces us to him. And, um, basically the, you know, the Velociraptor, all you see is the eye. So it's, it's teasing you about what is about to come while also setting the mood with music and everything.
1: Yes. Uh, the theme of the movie is, um, control is an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. And this is repeated over and over again. And this scene, um, it starts out, the danger is in a box. There's a big steel crate. You don't know what's in it. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of guys with guns surrounding it. They look like they're taking every precaution they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Then somebody gets grabbed. Okay. And in the classic like horror movie style, he's dragged on the ground uh, towards the this box that you can't see what's in it. Yeah. Then something crazy happens. He gets lifted like five feet into the air. Something completely unexpected.
0: Oh, yes, that's right. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, how then is that like, possible? Then
1: you're like, whoa, you know, right? And then all you do see is the eye.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you
0: and know, Bull they kind Boone of flash sh- shouting shooter,
1: shooter, shooter as the, the guy slowly gets pulled into the box while they're trying to keep him from going in there. Yeah. So, again, uh, control was an illusion. They thought they had it. They did not. Yeah. Somebody died. And unfortunately is um,
0: the minority who dies. Yes uh,
1: Well, to be fair, they're in Costa Rica So okay. a lot of the <laughs> local workers are going to be Costa Ricans
0: That's true, good point
1: Um. So that's the first scene of the movie Right So what's the second scene? It's very similar mm-hmm. Scene two, instead of being a blue colored like, night scene It's a day scene
0: mm-hmm. Stark Bright Very and, dramatic
1: And there's a guy in a suit in the middle of a jungle Mm-hmm kind of the opposite, right? Instead of, like, the thing being in a box, he's in the wilderness.
0: And it open...
1: Yes. And he's getting pulled on a little raft to a shoreline. And it's the lawyer that <laughs> that nobody likes.
0: Gen- Gen- Gennaro or Gennaro?
1: Yes, he looks completely out of place, unprepared for the wilderness that he's in. He's wearing, like, a business suit and, like, nice carrying shoes. Carrying a briefcase. Carrying a briefcase, walking through the mud. He does not have respect for uh, what is going on there. And ultimately they go into a cave and they find some amber and contained within that amber is the DNA that they use to create the dinosaurs. So again, the dinosaur is contained, contained. in the nice. symbolic uh, item.
0: Oh, nice. I like that. You didn't Yeah, we didn't talk about this ahead of time. <laughs> no. So
1: in the first two scenes, we've reinforced that multiple times. We've introduced two characters, mm-hmm. the gameskeeper and the lawyer, mm-hmm. that'll end up being more pivotal later on in the movie. Mm-hmm. And reinforce the theme of the movie two diff- completely different ways um, that uh, control is an illusion.
0: Mm-hmm. And one thing about Michael Crane that he was absolutely fantastic at with his books is he's he knew how to start a book with a, a hook that you could not ignore. And, I mean, I remember the first time I read Jurassic Park, the, the book, I, I was probably 11, it came out, the movie came out when I, at that time, and I had to read the book. And an 11-year-old reading Jurassic Park, now I kind of cringe at that, but that opening scene really caught my attention, and it was the, the excitement and the thrill of you know, future dinosaurs that kept me reading through what an 11-year-old would consider the boring parts. Um, but Michael Crichton, everything in his book, even the boring, quote unquote boring parts, were interesting. You know, he got really involved into into the science behind things and I really liked that as, as even a, a teenager. Um but going on to that theme of, you know, every scene doing two things, so we we get introduced to Grant in that scene where, you know, the lawyer's approaching the guy who gets the resin, I don't remember his name. The dude who gets the resin out of the cave. And he's that guy says, you know, they're talking about Dr. Grant and how they're going to try to get him to go there. And the guy's like, Grant's like me. He's a digger. And so that just, you know, it's just introducing us to Grant before we even meet him. So we kind of get this idea of who Grant is. And just a little bit of trivia, Harrison Ford was offered the role of Grant and he turned it down. And after watching it, he was like, yeah, I made the right choice. And I have to agree with him. I don't think he would have been good for the role. Agreed. Yeah, I think that... Is it Sam Neill? I don't remember. Sam Neill. Yeah, I thought he did a fantastic job as Grant. Um, okay, so then we get into the third scene of the movie, and we're not going to go scene by scene like this. This is just what was pulling out at me. But, um, okay, so the first one sets the tones and the characters. and introduces, including the dinosaurs, it introduces the dinosaurs as a pretty big character in the story. And then the second one introduces even more of the danger because they're talking about how people have been dying while they've been working on the park. And introduces more characters, including Grant and Gennaro, Gennaro. And then, of course, the mosquito and the resin. And then in the third scene, we, we meet Grant, and you, you see, you sh- they show us, rather than tell us that he dislikes kids, and they, they show us the danger of our main predator of the movie, which is the Velociraptor.
1: Which we were introduced partially in the first scene. So in the first scene, there's an eye, and in the third scene, there's a claw.
0: Yeah, the claw and then the story about what they're capable of doing. Exactly. Yes.
1: So they've indirectly started building tension around this creature you haven't seen very well.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, and yes, so the first scene was like a night scene. Mm-hmm. The second scene was a day scene. Mm-hmm. The third scene in the jungle. And then this third scene is the desert. contrasted. Yes, it's in the desert. So now we're out in the middle of nowhere.
0: Montana. Yeah, which is not not nowhere.
1: (laughs) Montana is amazing. Um, But it is a desert. So they're out there in some badlands. I don't know what you would call it technically, but they're out there at a dig site. And they have everything cordoned off, Mm -hmm. right? Safely, scientifically dissecting this site. Um, You know, collecting all their data on this thing that they are trying to understand, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? And then who arrives?
0: The helicopter with Hammond.
1: The helicopter with Hammond, and that shows his personality because he's like a bull in a china shop. He arrives, everything's done the way he wants it, Um, he won't take no for an answer. He doesn't
0: care about the mess he leaves behind.
1: Exactly. He didn't have respect for the dinosaurs that they were digging up when his helicopter lands and blows sand all over their site. Mm -hmm. So he didn't have any respect for the process, for what they were trying to accomplish.
0: And a little bit of a note on Hammond, um, Michael Crichton. And I don't know if how many of you have read the book, but Hammond was the bad guy in the book. He was not a good guy. I mean, Michael Crichton wanted him to be considered as a dark Walt Disney. But so in the movie, he's whimsical, upbeat, and happy. But in the book, he cut he cut corners. He blackmailed Nedry. He basically he hired one person to take over the entire security of the whole entire park, and then he blackmailed him, lowballed him, didn't actually pay him well. And of course, Nedry's gonna you know try to find a way to make more money. Um and then of course he lied about the safety of the park. But I mean how would the movie have gone if, if Hammond had been that way? I really actually I liked Hammond in the book just because he's a good villain, but I really liked him in the movie. The you know kind of the clueless, idealistic, optimistic person, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure why they made that creative I think it works in the movie. I don't know how it would have been had they made him that way.
0: It's interesting I, he, to think of
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, why they made that choice. I don't know. It works either way. They Mm -hmm. made it work both ways, so. Yeah. Uh, Probably because
0: everybody in the movie is, they're all down on the park. They're, you know. Yeah,
1: they needed someone to contrast um, all that negativity. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody rooting for the park that we wanted, I mean.
0: We want it to work for him. Right, and
1: we're sympathetic to him and the park and, like, why he was doing it.
0: Yep. I guess that's why. Um, one thing that I noticed throughout this movie is the, the tone and the settings, you know, there's several scenes where nothing, you know, when you watch it again, you know, nothing's going to happen, but the first time watching it, you expect something to happen. And, um, I don't know, a good example of that would be when Timmy's walking through the grass, you know, you expect something to pounce him from behind. And then, um, okay, so... Yeah, they have all these little things, but I'm going to move on. I hope you're okay with this. Move on to when when they first when they first see the big dinosaurs and Hammond's like, "Well, you know, they ask how fast the dinosaurs run and Hammond says we've clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour and and Grant and Ellie are both freaking out. You've got a T-Rex. You've got a T-Rex." And right there that's showing us the importance of the T-Rex to the story and anyway, so again it's showing us the importance of these creatures and you know, we've got the build-up to the Velociraptor, which, I don't know, I don't know about you, but the Velociraptor, this was the first time I'd been introduced to a Velociraptor. While well, everybody knows what a T-Rex is, you know. He's nodding his head. In case... Yes.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: In case you can't see him nodding his head, he is.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the first scene with dinosaurs where they see the big, whatever it is with the long neck.
0: Bron- Brachiosaurus or Brontosaurus? And... Yeah,
1: one of those. It's 20 minutes into the movie before you even see a dinosaur.
0: Besides the eye, besides the eye, I mean,
1: like like the scale. Yes, yeah. And the yeah. first thing they do is introduce you to one that's gigantic, like that, to get that sense of scale and awe. They yeah. went for that,
0: and that was a fantastic scene. That was thrilling the first time I saw that.
1: Hmm. And it still looks pretty good. Yeah.
0: Like um, twenty five years later. Yeah, the CGI is still believable. It's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, and then and then they do stuff like they they show a panoramic, like they turn around and you see like herds of them, you know.
0: Or Herods, Herods, as Grant says. Herods, yeah. <laughs> trying they not do to have Roman Herods <laughs> or move.
1: Trying to stifle his British accent, <laughs> and is only partially successful.
0: <laughs> Poor man, I hope he never hears this.
1: He, he won't. He won't. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so I mean, you know, they they do delay. I mean, you know, it's a dinosaur movie going into it, yeah. Jurassic Park, but you, they twenty minutes into a two-hour movie before you even see. A friendly-ish dinosaur, let alone the predatory ones, and they start off with nice ones that you see full, fully. Yeah, yeah. They they, they don't show you that they they mention a T-Rex and they've mentioned the Velociraptors, but you haven't seen those ones yet.
0: Yeah, and that's fantastic. I mean, that's one thing that we're going to talk about this movie. But the the new Godzilla that they did awful. Like they would tease and tease and tease, and then they never fully, you know built on that but Jurassic Park doesn't have that that problem they tease and tease and they put the moon in there and then they actually really um what's the word fulfill or complete that yeah teasing um okay so a little bit of trivia here or not even trivia as I was saying earlier Michael Michael Crane's little I mean his books are really long he puts a lot of detail into them and when I was first reading them, I would the first time I read it, I read the whole thing. But every time after that, and I I've actually read Jurassic Park eleven times. I haven't read it since I was probably eighteen, but I read it all growing, you know, all the time in high school and junior high. Uh, but in the movie, they they take that little DNA cartoon, you know, John Hammond's little cartoon guy, and the D, Mr. DNA or whatever. They condense condense a ton of exposition exposition into just a very few minutes. And I I appreciate that. I mean, it's fascinating, but they do take quite a bit and put it into a couple of minutes.
1: Well, it's nice that they do that as part of a ride. So you don't feel like it's just like, don't you hate it when characters like explain the plot to you? Oh yes. Yeah. And like all that, they, they did it by having something that would naturally do that to you. Um, the ride explaining, you know, like the, yeah, the attraction is, part is the explanation so they they could put it in there like a lot of exposition stuff
0: and it's good because the characters are learning with us so it's not you know what is it maiden butler where they're right they everybody already knows
1: like it's actually informing the characters in the movie and us at the same time yeah which is very nice
0: yeah exactly
1: and this is where i get to my science rant scene
0: Okay, let's let's hear your rant. <laughs> okay.
1: This is what we're talking about is the scene where they're sitting down in the chairs and they're watching like the video and it's like moving on and they see the lab.
0: <laughs> and my husband works in a lab. <laughs> I work
1: in a lab. And then it moves on from the lab and they're mad because they want to see the lab, so they break out of the ride and go into the lab where everyone else is wearing lab coats but them cuz I guess you don't need the lab coats
0: And they don't stop them and make them put. They
1: don't stop them and throw them out like anybody would if you had to have a lab coat in that area, which you would. Just saying. I'm
0: nodding. You're
1: nodding. Uh, (laughs) But that's not the part that I hate. We are introduced to a dastardly villain, Doctor Wu, one of the most evil men I can conceive of in science. And it's not just because we know. (laughs) It's not just because we know. In Jurassic World, the last, most recent movie, and. um, Where he's, you know, the sort of... He's
0: available for hire for bad things. He's the
1: mad scientist in that movie. We know that later. I I knew he was a bad seed from this movie because (laughs) he has an eraser. He has a pencil, and he's erasing something on a clipboard in the lab. I cannot tell you the heresy (laughs) that he is guilty of. He should be drawn and quartered for that. Pencils, just so you know, pencils are absolutely not allowed in any reputable lab, which I guess they're not.
0: <laughs> Their lab is not. Well, you know, John maybe couldn't have afforded pens, so they only had pencils.
1: Okay. There is a lot of rules uh, <laughs> regarding notebooks and documentation in a laboratory. You never erase. You draw a single line <laughs> through through your corrections so that, that your uh, original data is still visible. You know, you sign and date. You have, there's a, a bunch of letter codes in our lab that we use to say why we made the correction. T is a transcription error, like you just copied something down incorrectly. So, uh, uh, if you're seen with a pencil anywhere near, even if you're a student, uh, you get uh, you get that pencil broken in front of your face and it's thrown in the garbage. Are you kidding you know, me?
0: You don't get fired.
1: You should. If you're if you're uh, if you're using it to record actual data, you would be in pretty big trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but th- there are no pencils.
0: In no, no, lab. no. No, and no erasing.
1: There's no erasing. And he
0: actually Dr. Who actually erases. He's actually
1: erasing. The first scene you see him and he's got his eraser. He's erasing. On a clip like his, his <laughs> notebook. And then he does it again at the end. He's like talking to him while he's flaunting his pencil. It's insane. <laughs> right. Sorry.
0: Okay. All right. We'll we'll continue we'll go on from there. So basically the moral of the story is get your research right or my husband will stalk you. <laughs>
1: but this this scene's also important for some other reasons this is the first time we see a complete velociraptor
0: and <laughs> it's so cute
1: yes and that made that made you sympathetic oh yes and it it's shows them and it shows them yes in a disarmed manner
0: mm-hmm. contained, contained and breaking out of the containment
1: exactly and he's holding it he's holding it and he knows that this is bad yep uh, and he's just like staring at it and doesn't know what to think or f- he's conflicted.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, when Dr. Grant's holding that, holding that baby raptor, you know, they're like, what is this? And he says, it's a Velociraptor. He's like, you've bred Velociraptors. I mean, totally again, showing us what, you know, what a Velociraptor, the importance behind it. And by the way, a little bit of trivia. Okay. Did you know that they've discovered red blood cells and actual soft tissue in a T-Rex's bone? Interesting. Yeah, that happened in 2005, but and they still haven't followed up with actual cloning. But I'm hoping it will happen. You can't
1: clone from red blood cells. They don't have nuclei.
0: <laughs> well, mix it with an uh, African bullfrog.
1: You'd have to know what genes are missing. You can't just put genes in there. You need to know what was missing.
0: <laughs> this is why you work in a lab, and I don't. I,
1: I specifically work in a molecular biology lab. <laughs> I work with viruses and not genomics, but just so you know, I don't...
0: Um, but a little bit of foreshadowing from this lab scene—it's—it's it's fantastic foreshadowing because they're like the dino—the dinosaurs are only female, and Malcolm's very skeptical about that, and so that draws that already foreshadows to us that that there's a possibility that their plans are not going to be completely um, their plans are going to go awry basically. Yeah,
1: and we can talk about that scene in the future real quick if you want. They do find eggs later that have hatched, and his reaction, Grant's reaction, is the same wonder. Yeah. Than dread.
0: Yeah, like, oh, they, they Malcolm was correct, and then... Oh. He's like, wow, eggs, they hash, look at all the little footprints, wait a second. These are Velociraptor footprints. And
1: he has that conflict, because he's studied dinosaurs his whole life, and now he sees them, and now he realizes how little he knows about them, and how dangerous they really are. Because yeah, he theoretically so knew, he explained to the kid in the second, third scene of the movie, you know, how it can disembowel him with this giant claw. <laughs> But the reality of what he's really studying, um, you know, he just has that, that personality conflict between um, the wonder of seeing... The, and the, the theme music parallels that as well.
0: Yeah, it's, it does.
1: That's the, the, the theme music, which we all know, is not super tense.
0: No. Well, and uh, John Williams said that he wanted to be able to encapsulate and to pull us to that, that feeling of wonder in, in the right. music.
1: And that's... I mean, that... You know it's beautiful and it's dangerous nature is beautiful and dangerous you know controls and illusion that theme song and you know all of these themes tie together
0: yeah and at this point they're still not showing the and and then when we go and feed the raptors, we only see the the cow going down and then coming back up with very little blood on the <laughs>
1: <laughs> surprisingly little blood but this... but
0: we don't see the bad the bad dinosaurs still they're still not showing them to us mm-hmm um, okay, so one thing I noticed while they're in there, <laughs> I just saw my my note in here. about While we we're watching this, Nolan was commenting on Gennaro's um, hairy, hairy,
1: feminine oh, legs. legs. <laughs> no, well, I wouldn't say they're feminine, but they're they're yeah, they're very hairy legs and. Uh...
0: And then when we get to the scene where they're watching the the Velociraptors eat Muldoon, and my husband's like, and his manly thighs.
1: <laughs> they're Muldoon is much manlier than the lawyer.
0: Oh, he is. He's also pretty cool. I really like this his character. Yeah. I'm I'm ashamed of him for he's how he's the he one died. that
1: he's the one that really had respect and really understood what was going on, how dangerous things could be. He didn't have that illusion. He's the one character, well, at least the most who really had respect for the creatures. So and he's it,
0: been working with them for so long. And, he,
1: and it's still not enough to save him.
0: Yeah, exactly. And yet it's enough to save everybody else.
1: Not everybody <laughs> No, else. Not
0: everybody. Um, let's see, what was my next comment going to be? Okay, so we are introduced to the kids, and one thing I'm sure you've noticed is that they, kids are their, their plot devices. They're not... They try to make us care for them. Well, we were supposed to care for them. That's their plot devices, to bring in that, that the innocent character to add tension and sympathy to us so that we're, you know, we're even more worried because once you throw somebody in who is innocent or in a position to need to be, to need to be protected, it just makes it more, um, more dangerous, more thrilling, more, more freaky, more scary.
1: Yeah. And so like, I just want to make one side note. Um, Hammond goes on this, uh, like, I want to say like, a, gives a speech about standing in the light of Discovery, and just when he says that, the projector behind him is like shining a light halo around him. Oh, yes. I don't know if they did that on purpose or not, but I thought it was nice. But, nice um, touch. so before the kids arrive, they're having a discussion. He's like, Well, what do you think of my park so far? And they're like, You're insane. This All is the worst. Yeah. Every single one, except the blood sucking lawyer, says this is an insane idea. This is dangerous. You need to shut it down. Um, it's too much. We can't, you know, there's, they, they understand how crazy this is. And then, then the kids show up. Yes. So that ups the ante. They say, "No way, on earth should we be doing this?" Then the kids.
0: Yeah, and it's more contrast again. We, yes. We get more and more danger, and then innocent children appear. Um, one thing that I never noticed until this time when we were watching is Timmy dresses like Doctor Grant. Well, we know that he idolizes Doctor Grant, which so it makes sense. So he's got he's got the blue button up. He's wearing khaki pants. He's got. A neckerchief. <laughs> and I had to ask my husband. I was like, what is that called? Is that a handkerchief? My husband Googles it. And he starts to look at pictures of people wearing neckerchiefs.
1: And ascots.
0: And and I'm going to get to that. Okay. <laughs> so we're sitting there. We're all the way. Let's see what part are we at. No dinosaurs visible. They get to the t- rat, T-Rex paddock. The paddock. And my husband was has finally moved on to ascots. <laughs> He's looking at pictures. He says, look at how happy they are. <laughs> Everyone
1: that wears ascots looks like they're having a lot of fun.
0: Um, well, you did say that some of them
1: look like they're smoldering. Well, they're smoldering, which is fun to, it's fun to have a smolder. (laughs) Uh,
0: anyway, so we've got that little, that little, you know, nice little touch there that shows us just how much Timmy just idolizes Dr. Grant. And then, of course, Dr. Grant's like, ugh, these kids, they're driving me nuts. And so it just shows the, the beginning of Dr. Grant's relationship and his character development. Because by the end, we know that the kid's you know, in the helicopter, they fall asleep on him. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so um, I have similar things to say about this. So, yeah, during the dinosaur tour, there's no dinosaurs. But what does that show you? It shows you that they're not cooperating. Even by the absence of dinosaurs, yes. they're showing they cannot be controlled. They don't show up when you want them to. Eventually, there'll be entirely too many dinosaurs for them. Yes. But at the at the moment, they're like, okay, now we want to see dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. There aren't any. They're, they're not going to play ball.
0: Yeah. So when they're by the T-Rex paddock, uh, the goat comes up, up, and it's, I really love this because nothing happens with the goat, but then they, it's foreshadowing again. It's very, very light, you know, they leave the goat there, and then the goat is revisited later in a super awesome way.
1: True. Okay, so, Triceratops.
0: Yep, go ahead.
1: The first dinosaur they encounter up close is helpless. Yes. It's sick, it's on its side. And um, Ellie has a single tear.
0: Oh yes, the single tear.
1: Single tear. Which if we ever do uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy.
0: Yeah, there's single tears in like every five. There's
1: minutes. a flood of single tears if you can imagine <laughs> that. You can be resolved that dichotomy. It's a flood of single tears. That's a thing that happens. Um, but you know, so it's their their first real encounter with a full grown dinosaur. Is is one where. It, there's a bunch of other workers around it. You know, Ellie's trying to figure out why it's sick. Um, you know,
0: she... and it's in a, it's not dangerous. It's
1: yeah, it's it's not in a state where it can hurt them at all. Yeah.
0: OK, so back to I guess they're back on the tour, but a little co- side comment about, you know, the part where Malcolm, you know, trying to explain chaos theory to Ellie and he's like, "You put a drop of water here. And then he's like, and then you wipe it off, and you put a drop of water here in the same spot, it'll go down. I tried that multiple times, and I never once got it to work the way he said it would.
1: It's true. I've seen her.
0: <laughs> the drop of water always followed the same path. It didn't matter. I mean, I cheated sometimes and tried to get it to go other ways, but anyway. And by the way, they're awkward flirting. Did you know that the two of them ended up hooking up for like two years after that movie was done? <sighs> art imitates life. Life imitates art. Yeah, but they were yes. so awkward together in that movie.
1: That's because it was genuine. It was genuine <laughs> awkward flirting, not the fake kind.
0: I have to laugh that Ian Malcolm was put up you know, Jeff Goldblum was like a sex symbol back then because Did you see him with a shirt unbuttoned? Come on. Yeah, now. he had his shirt unbuttoned the whole movie after he got injured. It was <laughs>
1: it's half unbuttoned for the first half of the movie and then all unbuttoned for the last half. For
0: the rest. Yes, Nolan had a funny comment about the part where, and and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, when the transverse wrecks, when they find him after he's been attacked, Nolan's like, he somehow managed to unbutton the rest of his shirt. (laughs)
1: He's horribly injured and unbuttons his shirt (laughs) for his leg injury.
0: Yes, yes. And then the rest of the movie, there's a lot of open shirt scenes. It's like, you know, they're like, behold, Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) There's a
1: lot of memes with him, like lounging like that. Yes, yes. Or like they they get have gifts of him like just sitting laying there breathing, <laughs> it's pretty great.
0: So a little bit when they're you're they're heading up to the um, Triceratops, there's like little bits where they're they're trying to trick you into thinking something's about to happen. So for example, Lexi falling and was it Dr. Grant that helps her up and how she holds his hand? Well, they kind of zoom the camera in and kind of make it feel more than it is. And it's, I know that that's partly because the next little bit, when Timmy's walking through the grass and the camera's falling on his ankles, it's just to make you feel tension that something's about to happen. It's a fantastic mood setter.
1: Yeah. They, they use the, how they frame the shot to change the mood of the scene.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as an author, um, that's one of the that's something that takes a lot of practice to be able to do because you can you you put the reader's attention on a specific aspect of the scene of the story to give it that certain that more tension I mean it's it's part of telling the story because you know if you take it from a different emotion or something like that it won't be as tense and it's it's something that takes some practice to be able to master um, okay so let me um, I think we're gonna probably end up having to do this as a two-parter
1: yeah, I'm only uh, one, almost one and a half pages. This is the se- the middle of the movie. We're getting to the the big, happening. The exciting parts. Yeah, so we're only halfway through our notes and halfway through the movie. Yeah.
0: So, so we we can continue this. Um, yeah, we'll continue this later into in the second episode. And what you don't know is that my husband has to get up at like four o'clock a.m. to go to work, and we're it's bedtime now. <laughs> anyway. um... Tune in with us next time for the next episode and we'll continue discussing Jurassic Park and we'll see you all later. Bye. Bye.